ever wonder when Spider-Man goes to the bathroom if the toilet paper sticks to his fingers? You ever wonder why Superman wears his underwear outside of his pants? My name is Imran. My name is Anthony. He's the jock! And he's the nerd. And we're your hosts for the Jock and Nerd Podcast, where we sometimes try to attempt to answer these questions. This is a full spoiler podcast, and we swear a lot. Check it out for awesome geek news, interviews, and comic book reviews. Visit jockandnerd.com. We are your superhero TV, movies, and comic book culture curators. Boom. Jockandnerd.com. Jockandnerd! Victor Dandridge, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm good, Dirk Manning. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Hey, did you hear that uh, Adrian has issues? Yo, he's got a lot of issues. That is what I've heard. I've heard that his issues are amazing as they are Wide. Yes, numerous. Yeah. Far-reaching? Far-reaching. Vast. He has a plethora of issues. Oh, snap. A multitude. A multitude. A spectrum of issues. A myriad of, of issues? Is you're reaching you're deep. But, you know, listen, we can talk about Adrian's issues all day. True. But the fact of the matter is Adrian has issues. Right. And now everyone out there, thanks to you, Victor Dandridge. To me? What about to you, Dirk Manning? Now everyone else can experience Adrian's issues. Isn't that great? That's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, you know, why don't we quit talking, and then people can experience Adrian and his issues, because I've heard that Adrian has, has issues. He does have issues. So, Dirk Manning, you're going to get off this? I think I will, Victor Dandridge. Let's allow people to get to Adrian. Let's talk to Adrian, then. Hey guys, and welcome to Adrian Has Issues. I'm Adrian. Today's guest, I feel bad because this is another one of those cases of he was supposed to be on the show ages ago and like our timing just never panned out. And like I felt like a like the worst liar in the world. But he's here today and he's rocking a really awesome Faith No More shirt as I'm basically stalking him on Skype. <laughs> But, all right, let's see. You're a cartoonist. You actually are a teacher in sequential art, BFA and MFA, which is nuts. And, well, we really bonded over our mutual love of Mike Patton and all of his bajillions of projects. Right. So that's kind of really where that started. But without further ado, Ben Cohen. Ben, how's it going, man? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Like I said, I'm glad we're able to get together and uh, make this work out. Oh, you know, it's as much my fault, actually, probably more. So don't worry about it. And I really appreciate being on. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Because <laughs> um, I think the last time we tried to do this, um, I know you did a couple of conventions and I did a bunch of them. So they we kept crisscrossing each other. I think I was in Seattle. I think it was actually in Seattle, like on a family vacation. The first time you asked me about this, I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll do that. I'll get back to you. <laughs> that was months ago <laughs> right and, and the thing is like well i personally feel like i wasn't getting a brush off because i ask people a lot of times but then i always just assume that the one thing people don't realize about creators especially when it comes to comics is that time is precious 
Because, you know, a lot of you guys also have jobs, but then, of course, right. working on art is pretty meticulous. And again, I'm surprised of anybody who tweets as regularly as you do, like, still manages to pull out some, like, amazing work. So, I mean, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> well, I spend 90% tweeting, about 10% actually doing work. <laughs> um, no, I, I have a day job that's very consuming. I work uh, in actually chronic pain. My father-in-law is the doctor. And I don't know how I got to that job other than I married into it. And I teach and I have a kid and I also do comics, which was when I was four years old, I was like, I'm going to be a cartoonist. And so I still am. But uh, like everybody that I've ever talked to in the field, we all have our day jobs or we are one of the lucky few who are able to make a living doing this. Luckily for us, most of those people realize that we're still pretty legitimate, even if that's not our main bread and butter. Yeah, I think this is um, a very awesome time as far as the industry, because unfortunately, I feel personally, I don't know if you feel differently, so feel free to object, is that mm -hmm. there was a time where people felt that unless you were, you know, working for the big two, working in like a lot of like in-depth comics, you know, making money hand over fist, that you weren't legitimate, that you weren't in the business. But yet, it's like that thing where it's like, okay, do you write? It's like, yes, well, you're a writer. Same thing with the artists. So I, I yeah. feel like now that other artists are finally starting to get a little bit more credit and it's not just a matter of, okay, you just do Superman and Batman and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think part of it is that, well, if you're my age, you grew up with uh, going to family functions and, and telling, making the mistake of telling a family member, oh, I want to be this. And they're like, what, do you want to draw peanuts? I'm like, no, that's Charles Schultz. That's, he's the only one who does that. <laughs> I'm going to do my own thing. <laughs> So as a viable option, it's been difficult. And the other piece of that is that we have become a more diversified – well, we were always a diverse community. But right. we've become, through social media and through, uh, thankfully, the chutzpah of people who bring that diversity in getting their voices out, we've been able to actually diversify. And that part of it has allowed for people who are like me, sort of, you know, there's plenty of – white Jewish guys making comics in the history of comics, but uh, <laughs> it's actually helped me out because I've been able to be part of the small indie uh, group that has sort of been pushing not just comics into the community more, you know, family members understanding and knowing it more, but also we've been able to push into the big two as well. There's lots of great cartoonists who are getting chances to do little projects and even big projects there, and it's it's good. It's good for those comics, and it's good for comics in general absolutely it's funny because of course diversity is a word that has come up more often than not in the last couple of years it feels different now because i know unfortunately you get the few detractors who have kind of how can i say this um have sort of pushed it into like this little block of it being like a buzzword but yeah. yet i feel like this time it's a little bit more than that now because uh, the the movement's too large, and the one great thing about indie comics, or as I guess the indie industry, is that there it's a pretty close knit group or a pretty close knit like I guess movement where they're not going to let that become a buzzword or just let it be some sort of passe uh, phase that eventually just goes away. So yeah. again, this is this is a pretty uh, interesting time. Yeah, I, personally, I think it's great. I grew up in a community. Well, for most of my young childhood. We were one of two white families on the block. 
I grew up in Berkeley, which also has a lot of strong feminist ties. And I grew up with basically that attitude about things that, you know, there's not just one perspective and there's plenty of others and they all have good stories to tell. And we are storytelling in comics. So to me, it's, it's important. It's funny. I, when I was going to school, there was, you know, what I would characterize as sort of an old, uh, old perspective on car, uh, the comics community. One of my professors had that he was short lived. He only lasted a year. And oh, wow. one thing I learned from him was he made this big point about how comics are a small community. Well, the one thing he wasn't considering when he was saying that was, yes, it's true. You do have to be open-minded and respectful and friendly to almost everybody because there's not a lot of people that make comics even still, but it's a growing community as far as a fan base. And uh, that's important. But the mistake, I think, maybe not him in general, but uh, specifically, but maybe in general, that a lot of cartoonists who have been around for a long time run the risk of is that they may not have always been open to diversity in the community. And they've assumed that by having that perspective be limited, um, that the old boys club could be operating still. And when he meant what this guy may have meant when he was talking about being nice was also protecting that. And I don't think that that's I think it's gone. I, th- I think that's pretty much dead in the water. This yeah. Point. And we're unfortunately, we're getting to that point where it's, I don't know if it's, I wouldn't personally, I don't know if it's gone, but it's definitely on its way out. Like it's one foot's out the door and the other is kind of teetering on the frame right. there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, every single person, I think the most frustrating thing for, especially uh, women and people of color and LGBT people as well, is that, it's not like they didn't grow up or weren't part of the community before. And it's also like they weren't reading comics by people who uh, were trying to exclude them. They were. They Yeah. And, and then they find out because they read something or they saw something or they actually interacted with one of them in some way that rebuffed them. Or there was just a general sense that, hey, I'm not getting anywhere. And then social media just blew that away. And so now it's a better it's a different game. It's a, it's a much better place to to be. Uh, a cartoonist, I think, at this point, because we all get along and we're all learning from each other a lot more, a lot quicker than we were before. The one thing you mentioned, which really did change the game, was social media. Yes. And I feel that that old guard, you know, that boys club that you mentioned, I'm not sure they really grasp the concept of social media and especially how prevalent it is now, because I mean, I'm not going to necessarily name names, but I'm sure you've seen it, too, uh, being a, a, a pretty regular tweeter where... You know, you get the few people in the industry who unfortunately make some, even if it's unintentional, but they have a tendency to maybe make some very, I guess, ignorant or some unfortunate statements. Yeah. And, you know, years ago, you'd maybe hear about it like on the on the back end through like a magazine or through like right. some sort of like insider thing. But now yeah. statements and everything goes so fast that... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Everybody knows it in seconds. And often they'll still dig a hole right there while it's still while it's happening. It's man. It's really entertaining to watch. <laughs> but it's so true. <laughs> uh, there are real people on both ends, both the person who's saying it, uh, who's basically screwing themselves and the people that they're hurting uh, in the context of that. And it's it's really frustrating because. As much as. Uh, film and video games and television and now comics themselves have made this community a popular thing 
we're still mostly all geeks. In other words, we've all been rejected and pushed aside and beat up or bullied or called names. And the fact that we do it to each other for, you know, I don't know, territory. I don't even understand it anymore because all we have is space to expand into. Uh, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I wanted to draw X-Men as a kid, but I don't necessarily need to, to be a cartoonist or a member of the community. What I need is an opportunity to just find my audience. Yeah, that's exactly it. And nobody really needs anything beyond that because most of us are at the point where we realize, yes, we should be making money. Yes, we should be uh, paid for the work we do. But the reality is that the industry is the financial side of it is so messed up that it's actually you know pretty easy to, to just produce the work you want to produce because there's no real financial problem that you're solving. You can't really solve it. Um, and then maybe this community, as it becomes more okay with itself, will be able to solve those problems together because. It's. I think they they work together, both the financial limitations and the cultural limitations that were in place before. And I think uh, eventually we'll work on both issues and get to the point where everybody's, you know, all all the ships are rising on the water as opposed to just one or two. I sincerely hope so. And uh, on another show I just did recently, uh, I got into this whole discussion about how. The idea of the starving artist is something that, you know, almost doesn't shouldn't even exist anymore. You know what I mean? Like you shouldn't have to suffer for your art. No, it it shouldn't. And and in fact, I mean, the nice thing about social media is it's created a community and it's allowed for us to uh, all share work very quickly and for to get to know each other pretty fast. But it also helps that continue that limited ability to make money because while you can become more popular, your images, uh, you're often having trouble controlling. Because I produce a work all the time where I'm like, this is great. And so I share it. And I'm like, dang it, I shared it. I should have made somebody <laughs> pay for it. That was a mistake. And uh, I myself am getting better at that. But it's not like there's a system you can really play into that works 100%. Uh, digital, no. digital sales is pretty good. Like Comixology, it's owned by Amazon, which is a giant corporation and has a lot of issues because it has employees who are uh, working tirelessly to get packages from one place to the other and not being compensated for it. But yeah, I just uh, heard about that recently. But, but at the same time, comiXology for comics is really kind of great because even though it's not really being used correctly to determine whose sales are working and who should be producing comics still, or what titles are really working and finding their audience, because uh, it doesn't add to the, uh, it, it, you know, if I buy a digital comic, it doesn't help much other than it gives money to the creator and the company. Uh, it doesn't actually, it registers, oh, this is popular. But um, I can make a comic and I can sell it on Comixology. And that's great because that's a marketplace that people are actually getting into and is expanding. And it's a marketplace that doesn't exclude people. There's nobody giving you the stink eye when you walk in the room. You can buy whatever you want. Very true. I do love digital comics as a medium because I'm going to consider myself a late adopter to that because for a very long time, and in a way I still am, you know, I still like my physical books, but yet not every book is going to be on a shelf. Right. 
So then there's going to be some, unfortunately, there's some books that will may not necessarily see a brick and mortar store, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's any less engaging. So, right. you know, I, I guess together did they make a really nice system, but I'm definitely not a person who subscribes in the belief of one over the other. Yeah. And I, I honestly, it's, yeah, I think you need all, it, you need them all. I mean, I produce, when I'm producing comics now, I actually do a small, very small print run on newsprint at my house. And that's the, you know, the collector's market. That's, those are the people who were like, I have to have that. Um, and <laughs> for whatever reason, I, at least the last series, I almost sold out of everything. The last series I did a series. Everybody has that series they did or that book they did way back when that didn't sell them. It's still in their closet. That one still is in my closet, but uh, the new stuff, <laughs> the new stuff, as far as the printed work is selling really well. And it's because I just didn't overdo it. I was like, I'm going to make something nice. It's going to look good. There's not going to be a lot of them and uh, it's going to be personal. And then the digital stuff, it's not selling, but I think that's only because I'm not in comicsology right now. And I think if I was, it'd probably do a lot better. And and that's because it's a it's convenient. And I would do it. I wouldn't do the I kind of am annoyed because I buy them myself. Um, I am annoyed by it being the same price, but I would do like the low ball, like one dollar for essentially a single issue comic, because let's make it, let's make it affordable. It's not something that's printed and tangible. You're saving money. You might as well make it a little cheaper. That's something I I felt, too. And um, we'll definitely have to get back to the the comic you mentioned. But I noticed that, too, with um, when it comes to, let's say, digital music versus a CD. Yeah. Uh, Because traditionally CDs, you know, at a time where, let's say, 15, 20. And I know, like, the digital stuff was closer to maybe, let's say, around, uh, like, 7, 8 around there. Yeah. But... I I don't know. Maybe it's just an inflation thing where I noticed that digital media is starting to become almost as expensive. As a matter of fact, I was just going to download a game on PlayStation, and I know for like a day one dig like a digital download, it's still sixty dollars. Which yeah, that's crazy. I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, that's crazy because I'm like, there's no disc, there's no instruction booklet, there's you know, there's no case or anything. Well, that th- that right there is why. Uh video games are just killing every other medium. I mean, they make more video game sales. I mean, video game sales just kill all other storytelling entertainment mediums out of the water as far as billions of dollars that they make. And, and the bottom of the barrel is comics by far, not even, nobody's even close, close to as poorly uh, funded as we are, but that's the difference. You, you, you sell a, for a dollar, you sell a comic book, which, yes, it's only like 20 minutes worth of entertainment, but uh, it's an intimate experience still and of lasting value. Uh, but that, for a dollar, people will still complain about it. They'll be like, I remember when it was 10 cents. And Wait. <laughs> there's like three or four Wait, of those people guys are still complaining stuff. about like a dollar <laughs> comic? Yeah. Seriously, I mean, I kind of do because I'm like, I used to get them for 65 cents. And I'm like, that's kind of crazy. And now they're four bucks. And I'm like, oh my God, they're four dollars? That's nuts. But a video game for sixty dollars, I guess I don't get that because I don't apparently am not playing those games. I'm like, I'll download it for free. Is that what you want me to do? Okay. <laughs> Where are there at? Well, there's that too. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. And and I, that leads into that very big thing. And I guess it does lead us back its way back to comics where I guess some people feel that the price may be prohibitive. 
And, but it. at the same time, I guess it is, right? But then I guess the other fear is, does that then lead people to pirate it more? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, comics are weird because a lot of the great cartoonists of this generation were giving away their work for free. They were doing web comics and they did excellent work. Now, now it's paying off for them because uh, they're getting published work digitally and um, print. And then after they have done that, then they take the web comic and they turn it into print and they make that money back too. I mean, there's ways to do it. And, you know, honestly, comics is a business. It always has been. Yeah. It, it's birth, at least comic books, it's birth is finance. It's not art. It was repackaging of already established branding. So the fact that we're at this point is really, it's been a crazy, you know, it's just a crazy history to get here. And we still need to sort of figure out the kinks, but it's not like we're any different from other mediums. I was gonna, I was thinking about comics. I think there is somebody right now who's, and I don't know who, I, I just saw it the other day, who's trying to do sort of a Netflix version of comics. Really? How so? <sighs> This is what I don't understand. I feel like they're probably limited in what you can actually get. So is Netflix anyway. But uh, I think that they are trying to do not, it's not like streaming, but it's essentially you pay to have access to X number of comics. And Marvel, sorry, Marvel Unlimited does that already. And they really control what you can read. And obviously they're limited to Marvel, but if there was like if comicsology switched over and they were just like okay now you can just do monthly prescription subscriptions to that was my day job they were talking uh subscription <laughs> uh you can all of a sudden everybody has access but everybody has the same limit and apple just did this with their music and i totally bought into it i was like apple they make billions of dollars i will do it and uh <laughs> i i listened to i had my music in that i've been collecting over the years and I can now also have access to all these songs that I never would have paid for before individually, but I kind of want to listen to. And I don't feel guilty about it, except for the fact that I know for a fact that there are artists who are being screwed over by that. There has to be, because that's the only way this works. <laughs> yeah, that was the same thing with, um, I know that was a big thing with uh, yeah, Spotify. Spotify where I see articles all the time where people are complaining about it. But then, on the other hand, I'm a cartoonist, so I'm like, yeah, but you know what? You made your money, <laughs> and now you're complaining. There are indie music artists who I feel bad for, but they're in the same boat I am. I mean, it's not like they just have to figure out a way to invent a way for them to make money another way. And essentially what it becomes is free advertisement for your show. Or, you know, I mean, there's just ways to work around it. I, every, every time I, I tweet something... It's free, but it's also a way for somebody to find me. And if they want a piece of original art or if they want a physical copy of my comic, that's great. My only problem is I think that my audience is pretty both obscure and diversified and worldwide. And I think I've only met or come in contact with maybe 4% of my potential audience. And how in the world, and you know, with billion, you know, as many billions of people there are. I don't know how I'm going to find everybody that would actually like my stuff. And so that's that's the journey that I'm on, is trying to figure that out. And if I get my work in their hands, that's great. If I get their work in their hands and I get paid for it, that's crazy. I mean, that's the Even most better. amazing thing ever. 
And so I just don't really have that attitude about it. I mean, my wife wishes I would, but I just <laughs> I can't have that attitude about it where it's like I have to get paid. No, I, I honestly am trying to communicate. I'm not necessarily trying to communicate and say, okay, now pay me for this awesome thing I just said. That being said, the amount of work it takes to make a comic is extraordinary. Amount of ability and work leading up to something ex- is actually executed well and is good is even more extraordinary, and that should have some value. Plus, we're talking about innovating and societal obligations and aesthetic uh, appreciations and all these big words. And <laughs> it's you know it's nice stuff and it's fun. It should be fun. And or at least of some sort of value emotionally. So I think that eventually, you know, the work I do will get to the right hands and I might get paid for it. But it's not like a regular job where you expect, you know, to get paid tomorrow. It's a little unfortunate, but you were talking before about your audience. I guess that's very true because let's say with like podcasting, for instance, I'll put it in something that I, I know. It's very similar to that. Yeah, right. I'll record an episode, I release it, and you hope with that, you know, you market it, you advertise it, people will hopefully share it and listen, maybe provide feedback, which is great. And at least there's some ways through, I guess, through programs or through analytics where I can check to see how people are listening. Like, it's crazy how some of it gets broken down, where it's like, okay, which episodes did they listen to? Which did they download? How long did they listen to the episode? And it goes to this whole thing where almost to the minute and even where they were listening to it. Um, Because I know there was one episode that like a lot of people overseas were checking that one out. But the thing is, you have no way of knowing how that happened. Right. No, it's true. You, you're like, how do I replicate this? I mean, it, it, <laughs> yeah, and I, you can get pretty nutty about that stuff you know just oh trying to analyze trying trying to do what corporations do which is essentially analyze human behavior in these ways and the fact is actually we're all individuals we're all going to have different interests and finding an algorithm that's going to find your audience for your podcast or my comic is just like the most it's not going to happen yeah, it's tough though, but I mean, I'm not necessarily one that's crazy about it. But no, I I do the same thing. I mean, I'm I'm just saying that the the sober reality, maybe maybe it's not sober. I've been drinking, but uh, maybe the reality <laughs> is that uh, that you take it with a grain of salt, like everything else. That's all. Right, because yeah. it's like if you knew, I figured like okay, let's say for instance your comic, if it's big in like Brazil, yes, and you're like you'd probably figure out okay. How is it that you guys got a hold of this? And how could, like you said, how could I replicate that? So that's true. You'd be surprised. I mean, there's bands that, and of course, you know, music's a big thing with both of us. Where, yeah. like, we'll take Faith No More, for instance. Yeah, let's let's talk about Mike Patton more. That sounds good. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I feel bad because I swear to God, we're going to get to your comic. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, whatever. We can skip over it and go to Mike Patton. That's okay. All right. Yes. I'll take Faith No More. All right. Um, let's see. They originally broke up. That was what, 98 or 97? I think it was 97. Well, I don't know. They went on tour in Europe, and Chuck was kind of getting on their nerves, and then they kind of ditched him. But I don't know exactly what year it was. I think it was 97. I remember being on a computer in my cousin's, uh, I guess what we used to call our game room, where we had like our Xboxes set up and everything. And I was spazzing out because I'm like, Faith No More is reuniting. Yeah. 
And I'm like, this is nuts. So, of course, I'm checking all over the place to see where those dates were. I think there are maybe two U.S. dates out of that entire tour. Right. And I was so angry about that. I'm like, why aren't they playing here? They're huge here. Only to find out. They're not. Not really. Not really. No. Like, not that huge here. So, yeah, I mean, essentially in, in 89, Mike Patton was arguably the heartthrob of that year in the U.S., Yes. But that was it. As far as the U.S., that created a cult following. It was started prior. I mean, let's not let's not give Chuck too bad a rap. I mean, honestly, We Care A Lot was a college hit radio song. And they were popular, but in Europe, they were huge. And I've never been to Australia and talked to somebody in Australia about Faith No More, but I'm pretty sure it's one of the biggest things ever. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and same thing with uh, South America and Central America. It's much bigger. Uh, they're just a more popular band in in all those areas, partly because our culture is a little bit um, weird. I was going to use the word disposable, and that sounds so negative. No, I'll take it. <laughs> but yeah, and it's because that's like so many of my favorite bands will never play the U.S. And if they do, maybe they'll play California. Maybe they'll do like a one-off show in New York, and then they'll they'll split. Right. Well, that's the thing. I, I mean, I grew up in the Bay Area, and I was like, I took it for granted. And then I moved to Savannah and then Vermont, and every place I've moved, it's been less and less. So, although I've seen Mike Patton in every place I've ever lived, which is kind of amazing. That's nuts, because, like, again, I am right here in northern New Jersey, and I still miss him every time they come to New York. That's, there's no excuse for that. What's wrong with you? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it is? That was, like, there was about... <laughs> There was like three years ago where I was like at a show like at least every three days, and then I stopped. Like for whatever reason, You're I guess like, I you know moved. I gotta stop. It was bad. So what I did was to support my habit of concert going and music addiction, I just created a music blog. That, that's uh, yeah, you could go that way. That's good. Well, it was either that or I started 12 stepping, and I, honestly, I was not in the mood for interventions. No, and, and and then when you have the conversation with other addicts, and you're like, yeah, mine is music, they're like, what the hell are Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, I've never broken into somebody's car to steal something to get CDs. I could have gone with meth, but... <laughs> Like, I shit you not, I had two CD wallets underneath the seat of my car yeah. um, that I had, and it got my car got broken into, like, and it was really professional, like, they didn't bust a window, oh they, like, popped the lock in. You gotta respect, you gotta respect that, too, I mean, like, they obviously did Oh, their- it was very slick, yeah. and they took the stereo, they couldn't get the, the actual built-in part, so they took the entire console, Jeez. it was a, like a 97 Ford Taurus, they just took the whole thing out. I think those are the most popular cars to steal. Yeah, it was it was a it was a loner. Um, it was you know, someone a friend of mine gave it to me cheap, and I wasn't upset. But what I was angry about was the fact that anything, almost everything else of value in a car wasn't touched. Yeah. The stereo and the two CD walls were taken, and I'm like, all right, I'm mad about it. But at the same time, I'm laughing hysterically, and my friend who I was trying to give a ride home to when this happened <laughs> is like baffled because I'm laughing hysterically and I'm like he's like what's so funny your car got broken into he's like yeah the CDs in there all those were all just burned copies of CDs that I already own <laughs> so somewhere this guy probably was riding away thinking he's got all this like money's worth of music yeah. only to find out that it's all of just like CDRs of like Coden Cambrium like Faith No well, More just... well, what year was this 
This was fairly recent. Oh, this really? was 2010. Oh, dude, what the hell? He could have just free downloaded it. <laughs> right? <laughs> God, you know what it is? He's like a real artist. He's like, this is how it used to be done. And so he does his homework, he trains. He's like with Miss, the Mr. Miyagi of, of breaking into cars. And he totally broke in just to get, to get the CDs that he could have just downloaded. I know. And it was just, but again, like you said, he he's like, he's a traditionalist. And he's like, you know what? You know, in my day, we didn't download stuff. We just, you know, took people's CDs. Well, this is, at, this is after the big, you know, Napster thing was over. He's like, oh, they're going to catch all those kids now. So I got to go back to the real way. I was like, dude, haven't you heard of torrenting? Like, Seriously? but yeah, my music addiction was crazy. Like, it it still is though, and it's that's again, like I said at the early uh, start of the show, is that that's basically how we bonded because you two were a big uh, Mike Patton yeah. fan, and it's funny because you do comics, you also teach, and you also have like you know you have several other jobs. I well, I'm currently injured, so I've been out of work um, for a while. But I'm trying to get back, and I've been doing podcasting. Whereas Mike Patton tours insanely. He's he's gotta be one of the hardest working people on the planet. I think I'm losing track of all the side projects. Like I think he starts a new one as many times yeah, as we like change our clothes. I actually, and this is this, you know, I have my own problems. I actually pretty much still know everything that he's done. I think I have, I essentially have everything he's ever done. But my dad has the same problem. My brother. My oh, so brother my dad. has the same problem. <laughs> it's like, I I grew up, my mom is, um, you know, her, her dad was a pretty normal Quaker guy from Oklahoma. And she grew up in Oklahoma. Okay. And her family is all pretty, like, just salt of the earth type people. And she's the weirdo. She was like, I went and became an architect. It's a pretty big deal. Uh, a little strange, you know. She moved to California. Everybody thinks she's really weird in Oklahoma. But my dad is, he grew up in this crazy Jewish family, and his one escape was rock and roll. Jordan, my brother, and I grew up with like, yes, you have to go to synagogue, and you have to be bar mitzvah, but the only thing that's really lasting is rock and roll. And so... We grew up being tested constantly about music. Uh huh. I just, um, <laughs> we would, the only way we could deal with that was to test back by knowing more obscure and weirder stuff. And we found our own niches. My brother's actually an excellent guitarist. I'm a terrible drummer. My dad is a mediocre <laughs> pianist. And we're together, except for we live. I was the one who moved away. So I live literally 3,000 miles away from them. My brother actually lives in Seattle, uh-huh. which, which is the farthest he's ever been away. And it's it's kind of weird. <laughs> we, we never have all three instruments and, and us at the same time together. So it never works, <laughs> uh, probably by design. But we did grow up playing a little bit of music with him and stuff. It was a lot of fun. But he, his obsessions with things like Neil Young became our obsessions with other with other musicians. And for me, it was been Mike Patton since right. I was 12. So what was the first Faith and More song or album that you heard then? Uh, it was, so that would, uh, what is what is the first track on the real thing? It's from Out of Nowhere. I notice all that. Which, which yes, perfect, from Out of Nowhere. You know, it's like, just like, that's like the perfect title to a song that you're going to, 
by a guy you're going to be obsessed with the rest of your life. And uh, what it was was, I don't know if when exactly Vivid came out by Living Color, but my friend Gabe McKeon, I had moved. So I moved from Berkeley to Mill Valley, California. And my friend Gabe okay. McKeon, uh, I was 12. I had like four friends that year. Gabe McKeon, Todd Lowe, that was, that was one, two of them. Kevin Moore and then Sasha Brown. Gabe and I would bike, bike together and he had cable and I didn't. So of course that's that's why he became yeah, friends, like, right? He's got red hair and cable. This is amazing. So <laughs> he also plays guitar and he was the first person I ever jammed with. I was ter- I was absolutely terrible. He's like he starts shredding some Iron Maiden stuff, which by the way, I at that point was like, I don't like whatever this is. Now I love it. And I remember that song, it was uh, Wasted Years, and I still I obsess over that song still. Oh, it's one of the best. It's the so chorus good. alone like, is just the, it's guitar, epic. And like my drum, it was just that I was a bad drummer. So I was like, I can't, I don't get this. But as a guitarist, he was excellent. So he was really good. But anyway, my point is he had MTV. They had uh, Cult of Personality by Living Color playing. And they had um, Epic by Faith No More playing. I was like, these are amazing. This, what is this? Because this was where I grew up with either, you know, rap music in my neighborhood, because that's where I grew up. And 60s rock and roll in my house. Right. And I, for myself, would turn on the radio and they had Live 105 in San Francisco. So I was listening to The Cure, uh, Specials, uh, Dead Kennedys, like just anything alternative, essentially, before it became, quote unquote, alternative, before Nirvana. Um, I, that was my my jam. And he was into hair bands and heavy metal. And I was like, what is this? And and then Faith No More comes on, and both of us were like, this is this we understand. And we both can talk about it because it came from both of the langu- all the languages that we knew musically. And same thing with Living Color. And so it was like I had to make a choice between Corey Glover from Living Color and Mike Patton from Faith No More at, to be obsessed with. And that's kind of a tough choice because... It's a really tough choice. Because the Living Color, uh, just a, a, a quick aside, never got the credit they deserved. No, not at all. And first of all, Vernon Reed, still my favorite guitarist. No, nobody's better than him. Uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me since joining Twitter was I've had like three conversations on Twitter with, with Vernon Reed. Get out of here. And, and I told my brother that, yeah. And I told my brother that, and... My brother's actually angry at me now. Like, is like, that why he's not leaving Seattle? Yeah, that's right. He won't come to Vermont until I can hook him up with having a conversation with Vernon Reed. I'm like, I, it just happened. I don't know what to say. And it was over weird stuff. Like, uh, it was hit, they were making Hitler popsicles in India, and <laughs> he shares this tweet about it, and I'm like, that's just weird. And so he and I just started talking about Hitler popsicles, and that was one of the conversations. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but anyway, yeah, so Living Color, uh, just one of the greatest bands of all time, and they connect legitimately black culture and alternative metal, punk rock culture. They really bring those cultures together in a way that uh, Faith No More can't do, even though Faith No More was certainly mining hip-hop. Right. It's not the same thing, because Faith No More is some kids from Berkeley, which has some legitimatized to all different kinds of cultures. But Mike Patton's from Eureka. Mr. Bungle's from essentially Vermont, the Vermont of California. 
Really? Okay? Yeah. When you're driving in California on 101, there's these signs. And they say, wherever you're going to, what you know of. And then they say, Eureka. And Eureka is the town most north, uh, the last town, essentially, in California before you get to Oregon. And nobody ever goes to Eureka. Everybody's like, what's Eureka? How, how do you get, how, I know you can get there on this road, but how long does it take? And it's Humboldt County. It's a very, it's one of, it's, I mean, now it's considered like this real big pot smoking place. It, there's some college, it's a college town, kind of. But really what it is, is like a nowhere place with lots of trees and <laughs> lots of rednecky type people. They were playing They were playing in these bars that were like, just you, you would never consider them to be playing in. And the reason that Faith No More is connected to Mr. Bungle originally is because those kids had to drive all the way down to San Francisco. They went and saw Faith No More, or they almost saw them. I forget what the real story is. I feel like there was a problem with the whole them actually seeing them. I forget what the real story is. But And then Faith and More went back up and actually played in some random bar. And the only people there to watch Faith No More was, were these 15, 16-year-old kids who were in this band. And they were like, hey, man, can you have our demo? And Jim Martin, who's the guitarist of Faith No More, takes the demo. They kick Chuck out, and they're looking to get a new singer. And he's been obsessing over these demos by this band, by these kids that they met in Eureka. And they had even interviewed, I think Chris Cornella tried out at one point. Really? That would have been weird. He also <laughs> tried out, I think, for In Excess after, what's his name died? Michael, I forget what that guy's Michael Hutchins? Yeah. But I, that, I might be wrong about that. But anyway, he was like the court, he was like Courtney Love. He would be in any band. He was just trying to get a gig. And <laughs> he, was re- he was really good. He was legit. Soundguard's amazing. But that's the first band I ever saw live, only because they opened up for Faith No More when I saw them. But um, Jim Martin was like relentlessly obsessed and relentless in his trying to sell Mike Patton as the singer for Faith No More to the rest of Faith No More. And they were like, fine, we'll give this kid a try. And he, you know, he just blew it out of the park. And they were like, okay, here's the songs. They were all done. You have like a week to write the songs and, and we'll record them. And they did. They went on tour. They came back. They were in a limo in L.A. They had they were on tour in Europe, and they came back to L.A. They were going to, like, I don't know where, Japan or someplace. At the airport at LAX, they have to go and sit in a limo. They're like, you're the most popular band in the U.S. right now. No, hmm. no idea. And the rest, you know, is history, essentially. I wish I had that much knowledge of Faith No More, because, granted, let's see, the real thing came out, that's 89. 89, yeah, yeah. But they were touring it. I think they were touring in 88. I might be wrong about that. Okay. Though. Which I'm showing my age here, though, because let's see, 89, I was like only four years old. Yeah. So that's. And it's funny. I didn't really. It's like my parents were very big into music. Like, I mean, my dad grew up very, very big into like, you know, jazz and R&B. So the good stuff. Oh, it's amazing stuff. Who, and again, who's that's your dad's favorite musician. I still don't know to tell you the truth because it's weird. Like he's. I don't know if he really has a favorite. I think he just loves the genre in general. Okay. But it was my mom who really, the really eclectic one, because, again, there weren't too many people. Okay, well, it's like where we, we, where we grew up, um, like in Patterson, New Jersey, which mm-hmm. is predominant. Like, at least the part where I was born was predominantly black. But then we moved into a little bit more of a suburban type area. So I was really only one of, like, a couple of black kids in my Okay. In my class. Yeah. But yet, my parents were very much of that type where 
music, like if you were into it, you were just into it. There really wasn't. There was no like delegation as to you know this certain type of thing. No, so, that's that's right. That's how it really is. <laughs> right. So while we were listening to you know Run DMC, we were also listening to like you know Guns N' Roses right. or like Wham or what have you. It's funny because I don't remember when I kind of discovered rock for myself. I remember it was first grade. It was ninety two. It was Stone Temple Pilots Core. Wow. And I only know that that's because. Crazy. I would watch wrestling a lot on Sunday mornings yeah. because I used to, used to sleep over at my cousin's house. They'd either go to church or still be asleep. Yep. So I'd be watching TV and there'd be wrestling on. So there'd always be commercials for that album. And what was the one single plush <laughs> right, was playing? Yeah. And it's like, I've listened to music growing up pretty steadily, but yet there's something about that. I'm like, this sounds different from what I used to listen to. Like, I don't know what this is, but I want it. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, start watching, you know, MTV and stuff like that. And then came across Faith No More. And I know people kind of get a little bent out of shape when they find out that, like, Epic was their first song. But yet it was such a big single. Well, yeah, I mean, it was the first with him. Because they, the real thing was their third album. Right, because there was um, We Care A Lot. We Care A Lot. And then. Um, Introduce Yourself. Right. Which. I too came to after the fact, because as soon as the real thing came out, you were like, "What else is there?" Yeah, I'm like, "Wait, there was somebody before Mike Patton." Yeah, and then you listen to it, and you're like, "Wow, this is different," but I kind of like it. And then you're like, "Wait, that's not Mike Patton," and, and it's Chuck Mosley, and and you're like, "Wow, this guy, he's super weird." Like the singing is so interesting, and and over time, there are songs off those first two albums that are just I. I think they're better. I think there might be better songwriting, actually, on those albums than, than on The Real Thing. The Real Thing <laughs> was definitely kind of like that first, well, I mean, for Mike Patton, naturally. I mean, there were some really, like, those songs in there, like, they're, they're just kind of weird that really don't have a place. Yeah. But, yeah, there was still just something endearing about it. Yeah, I mean, they. it's not a bad album. And in fact, I go through periods where I'm like, I'll just listen to that for a month. Zombie Eaters alone, I mean, ugh. Well, the other thing is, I, I connect, uh, I think it's Chinese Arithmetic and Zombie Eaters. I almost think they're like, they're, they're pretty similar songs, and one's off of uh, the album before it, and there's something about that that to me distills what they were, but it's also impossible to distill what they were. So it's kind of a weird thing. Like, I, I see them as quintessential Faith and More songs, but at the same time, what is that? They didn't do it as much as Bungle, but essentially they can play anything. Yeah. And that's why, like, on those later albums, and especially, like, on Angel Dust, I mean, you get your flat-out ragers, you know, oh, yeah. you're, you're sort of these metal hits, but then you get, of course, you know, the cover of Easy, and what was the other song? Not Kindergarten, um, or was it RV? RV, Like, yeah. these very, str- were these very strange, almost like, they're like lounge songs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you just that's never right. can put it together. Yeah, RV was my, I used that as a, um, I used to do drama in high school, and that was my monologue that i used in competitions it was kind of weird because <laughs> you're like this old dude but i was 17 but you're pretending to be an old dude yeah who's, who's a completely abusive person so it's kind of weird wow it's sad because i was always a fan of faith no more and i feel bad telling the story because my current girlfriend probably doesn't want to hear it okay. though but i guess the, the the lady i was involved with prior to her a couple of years before meeting her recently she, too, was a very big Mike Patton fan, you know, very much yeah. into, like, you know, Mr. Bungle and 
um, was it Phantomas as well? And so it's like we would kind of ride around a lot, it just really just geeking out about these songs. It's funny, after that, it all kind of fell apart. I'm like, wow, Angel Dust is like the perfect soundtrack right now. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. But yeah, yeah I'm the person, though. Like, I, I really do feel like that um, King for a Day Full of a Lifetime is a dangerously underrated album. Oh, it's first of all, yeah, as far as Faith No More albums, King for a Day Full for a Lifetime is my favorite Faith No More album. It's my favorite album, period, I've ever heard. The only thing is that the latest album, it's actually so good that I question, I like, I was questioning that for a moment. I was like, hmm, I wonder about this. Which is why, you know, I, I would say Mike Patton is amazing. I mean, he literally, from the beginning, from the demo tapes that Bungle was doing, Till the moment he stops making music, it's him pushing himself. Not everything's perfect. There's plenty of stuff that's not great. Right. But I'll still listen to it and enjoy it because there's something about him and his, the quality of his voice. Or his musicianship in general. I mean, he he's not just a singer. He, he can play a lot of different instruments. It's just that he actually surrounds himself with even better musicians, usually. usually. And usually it's a problem when we... Like, if he has a problem at all, it's usually because um, he overworks a track or, you know, in, in editing or the other musicians, there was something off. Well, I know he and um, Jim Martin kind of had that issue because they were just unfortunately going in completely different directions. Musically. Well, yeah, I mean, Angel Dust, essentially Jim Martin was never in the rest of the band would record and Jim Martin would show up later, which is crazy because that album is actually pretty good guitar driven yeah <laughs> that's so, so weird <laughs> not sure exactly why that works so well and i think that's the album that led into i think they were working on either at the same time or right before the uh bill and ted's bogus journey came out in which jim martin is like in the movie that's right he's in the very beginning like this you know past you know past guitar god <laughs> And Faith No More does a track for the soundtrack, and yet that was already it was already like almost over. That's so funny. I, I remember that scene very vividly. That that's hysterical. And now he's a, an award winning pumpkin farmer. What? Wait, what? Yeah, that's what he does. Northern California, he's like this uh, pumpkin farmer guy. Which you know, me living in Vermont next to a lot of farms, I really appreciate it. I can I can actually be like, you know, if you're gonna go another direction that's not the worst direction to go in. <laughs> that's so weird though like you think you know a lot of musicians will kind of stay within music even if they're not necessarily actively touring i think every person well i don't know i would say that most there, there's not a lot of actual stories in i think in music i think we overblow the the drama i mean it's rock and roll so blah 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 you know this story but these are human beings and they make mistakes or have personality issues. And maybe it's not, maybe the ends aren't a, a, that exciting. I actually like one guy. So I used to work in a coffee shop in Mill Valley and it's one of those places where Mill Valley is a weird town. It's okay. It was I think, like time magazine or something. It was like top 10 places to live. It was number 10. And, uh, <laughs> and to know. Like, if you can afford to live there, it's a great place. If you can't afford to live there and you are living there it's wonderful in some ways but difficult because you really sh you know everything's shoestring you re you're really having a hard, hard time struggling keeping it together but it's expensive it's not as diverse as i would like but culturally it actually is pretty diverse and it has marin city for example uh tam high is the high school i, I graduated from that's the last high school that tupac went to oh wow 
he was in, he was I think he was in my sister's class actually if I remember correctly. And, what are the freaking odds? <laughs> and that's because Marin City, all they all not to generalize any town or anything, but Marin City is mostly black neighborhood, and it was set up originally so that uh, there would be a local easy access to cheap labor. Wow! But what ended up happening was after the black power. Uh, Black Power Movement in Oakland, a lot of those people, they actually went into education and into other community relation types, you know, building up the community type thing. Right. Uh, many of them found a home in Marin City because it was less violent. It was easy to, easy to get to San Francisco and Oakland to still be part of that community, but it was safer for their kids. And their kids got to go to Tam High. And Tam High is one of the best high schools in California. And it was free. So... It was like kind of a no-brainer. You had community there. You weren't. Uh, you could still be part of what you were trying to do. So a lot of those kids ended up in my high school. And it was weird because I had grown up in Berkeley in an area that was basically an extension of Oakland neighborhoods. Then I was in middle school with a bunch of white kids. And then all of a sudden I was back in high school with more diversity, except for these weren't the, the kids that knew me. So I was like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I get you, but you don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> so so you're was, like halfway there yeah exactly but anyway my i guess my point about mill valley was that it's a place that has a lot of celebrity there's actually a lot of celebrity people that live there and there's a lot of old artists and old hippies that live there and a lot of silicon valley money that is there now changing it a lot um, but there's also diversity there it's a it's a strange fun little town and one of the people that lives there was the drummer for uh, Guns N' Roses. And he would come into the coffee shop and he was completely like, I've ne I had never seen anybody consistently messed up. Oh, I don't man. know if it was, I think it was basically pretty permanent. And he eventually was on, uh, I think, Celebrity Rehab or something. I was like, that's the dude. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I know that guy. I know that guy. And he would come in with the, these girls on his arms, and the girls would have to order the coffee for him because he was so out of his mind. That's crazy. And I felt bad. Like, I felt really bad for him. I don't know why I was talking about this. But anyway, it's a good story anyway. Oh, we're talking about – no, we're talking about uh, Jim Martin ending oh, up yeah, yeah. Uh, being so, a pumpkin farmer. So this – so in my mind, these type of interactions informed celebrity for me in that humanized it. And we put people on pedestals in our culture all the time in absurd yeah. ways. Thankfully, cartoonists typically aren't put on those pedestals, but it's a similar thing. Like you still go to a convention and all of a sudden there's somebody in front of you who's like, your work's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I'll sign that for you, but I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> um, I still, you know, have a regular life. So it's kind of a weird. And then you and then I'm like, oh, yeah, everybody has regular lives. That's that's a good point. <laughs> Very true. But I feel so bad. I, I think we should probably touch on it a little bit, though, of your comic on Bully, correct? Yeah. So, yeah, I did. Bully was this year's, and it's printed, and people can buy it. It's a little comic. It's 20 pages, and it is influenced by the places I've grown up, which or lived. It's influenced certainly by living in Berkeley. I would say that the kids that are in the story are somewhat representative of the kids that I grew up around. And I grew up certainly being bullied, but I'm not in the story. It's not about, about me at all. Okay. I went to school in Savannah, so it's influenced by that as well. But it's bookended by this focus on these sheep and a goat. <laughs> and <laughs> so 
there's some analogy stuff, weird analogy stuff going on there. But basically, it's about relationships between kids. There's something weird that happens in the middle, but I want to give it away. Anyway, no, that's, so that's perfectly fine. It's not. It's not weird. Normal. It's more weird. It's more like, um, you know, typical like a, comics, like an absurdist kind of thing. Yeah, it's got, well, it's just strange events, but the strange circumstances essentially lead to a positive outcome for all involved, and they're sheep. So, oh, and the sheep teleport. I do. I used to do sheep teleporting comics. The sheep teleport in this as well. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense when you read it. No, not okay. I was about to that's say, like, I don't know why. I guess maybe that's just how my brain works. But I'm like, okay, that's all you had to tell me. Oh, yeah. I think I would have just had to Still have read it. Sheep. I I should have led with that. No, <laughs> uh, my comics. Also, that's the other thing. I'm still working out how to tell stories, even though I've been doing this since I was four. That's been like the last concern. And so, <laughs> the other thing is, I'm dyslexic, and I've been, and there are words in this one. But my next book, Interrobang, which is what it, I'm working on now. And that's probably what I should be selling mostly because that's going to actually, I think it'll be good. And I think next year it'll be awesome, but it's basically silent. There's no uh, essential dialogue in it. Uh, it's post-apocalyptic. Then instead of sheep, there's buffalo. Uh, it's it's good. And it'll be about relationships as well. Very cool because I'm sure there's other people who maybe have dyslexia, maybe other things are grounded. Sure. You don't even have to have that, but I mean, would respond to maybe a book that doesn't necessarily have dialogue but yet still tells a story that you can follow along with yeah as far as silent comics i mean there's first of all comics have a pretty good history with regards to use of sequence of images to tell a story without words absolutely my favorite literally my favorite comic is frank by jim woodring and it always will be it's kind of like i know that there will never be anybody better than mike Patton. i'm pretty sure there will never be anybody better than jim woodring uh, James Sturm, who was a professor of mine at SCAD and, and now runs Center of Cartoon Studies, was nice enough to introduce him to me when I was in Savannah. And he did a lecture there, Sweet Guy. And he does this comic about, it's essentially, well, in part, a critique of his dad. He had a terrible relationship with his dad, I guess. And and he has uh-huh. he has this pig character that's his dad. And then he's got Frank and he's got some other weird characters. And there's no, there's no sound effects. I use sound effects at least. Uh, he doesn't even do that. And it's the most beautiful thing to read. And the reason is, is because silent comics are more intimate. Nobody is telling you anything. They're just showing you. If you're just seeing what's going on, you put yourself into it a lot more. Plus he purposefully uses a character that's anthropomorphic and uh, hardly specifically designed as Frank. So you put yourself right into that character. Right. The only stretch there is gender. He had a comic recently called Fran that's basically female Frank, and he's covered his bases there as well. It's the magic of comic. And he goes back to you know, the Scott McCloud book where there's this rule about the face, and he, he makes his point that, especially in manga, they, they usually make the protagonist the most plain-looking face, and then they'll make the villain the most detailed-looking face. And that's because they have to define the monster but they don't want to define the protagonist in a way that excludes somebody from identifying with. But the flip side Uh is that that's impossible. So you end up with white looking people that are guys as protagonists. And if you put more protagonists in that actually represent specifically look like other people and make them look like to have different, all different kinds of faces, 
then you start representing more people because yes, that one person is harder possibly for somebody to identify with. But as long as you have the story that somebody can identify with, then it's not really true. I mean, I've, I've read many comics and seen many movies where I don't look anything like that person. I'm not that gender. I'm not that sexual orientation, but I still get the hell where, where the hell they're coming from. And I've been in that situation (laughs) and they like the same food I do. It's amazing. (laughs) I mean, it's just silly, but it is one of those magic tricks that, that comics do for a huge portion of the population by simplifying the design. But the trick now is that I think we're at a point where let's make the monster the protagonist. Why not? I mean, they have feelings, too. Where can you find Bully? Um, is that available? So, yeah, you can get everything You can get everything in my store, which is basically, if you want to go to my website, which is bencohen.co, not com, C-O, E-E-N-C-O-H-E-N dot C-O, uh, you can stay up to date on Interrobang once a week. I update a page for free, and then it disappears. You're going to have to pay for it if you miss it. And uh, after that, you can also, it says store on there. You can go to the store and you can buy. Uh, if you have a few copies of the original Bully and Print available, you can also uh, get Benmanship, which is like a one-person anthology piece that took me, it's like a collection of the best of the last 10 years, 15 years, something like that. Oh, wow. You can't get it from me right now because I sold out of my copies, but I did a uh, body, I headed a body image uh, anthology that I put together this year, but I sold out on my copy. So other other cartoonists that are involved uh, will be printing up their own. You can get it from them. But if you contact me on Twitter at Ben Comics, um, or if you go to my store and look me up that way, I can get you in touch with those people. That's a really good project. It's worth worth checking out as well. Awesome! I really can't wait to check this out, man. <laughs> sure. I'm so glad I was finally someone to geek out with with the Faith No More stuff, and oh, I feel absolutely. like we we haven't even like got into it because I, I, so <laughs> you're just gonna have to come back on, and we're just gonna basically have to break down because actually something I've been trying to do, and I think you probably would be into this, is I've been trying to rank his like I guess all the side projects and even like Faith No More and try to figure out where they all lie like on a bracket. I I can do that for you. That's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have that ability. It's amazing. <laughs> All right. You know what? Then let's do top three. We'll do top three. Kind of make it a short one then. Of, of just the projects themselves? Yeah. I'm going to take Faith No More out because I feel like that's easy because then that would probably be okay. my number one. So I'm going to go side projects then. Okay. Well, let's take Bungle out then too because honestly, I think he just thinks of both of them as the same. And to me, it's Bungle. To you, it's Faith No More. So we'll just exclude those. Okay. That'll work. All right. Uh, so for me, let's see. The next three. I guess I'd have to say Phantom Us and then Tomahawk. And then the third one actually is a challenge. Let me think. Jeez, I would have... It's probably his work with John Zorn, who's uh, the jazz musician from New York. And he, there's been lots of projects with him, but I would, I would just generally everything he does with John Zorn. I'm trying to think, though, because I, I know this is something of a faux pod, though, but I would have to go Tomahawk over Phantom Us. Okay, that's fair. I, I would say that based on... I would almost agree with you based off the last album the last album was pretty amazing it's a, it's pretty epic yeah no pun intended no uh, yeah well that's good i'll take the pun <laughs> all right so that's good so you got those two and then what's your but I'm third? like, see the thing is i don't know okay 
I don't know if this counts because you can feel free to disagree. It's not really a side project though, but I want to say my third would have to be Mondo Kane, like the solo. No, one. I, th- yeah, I, I almost said that, and I went with John Zorn just because I like me some John Zorn. But yeah, definitely that counts. By the way, people may not know that's so. Those are Italian pop songs from the '60s recorded live with an Italian orchestra in Italy. Where he lived. He used to live there. His ex-wife, I, I think they're not married. His ex-wife is uh, Italian actress, porn actress. I forget exactly what she was. Yeah, it was something a little weird, though. But, I mean, it was well weird in the sense that it made sense for Mike Patton, though. But just... Oh, it's perfect for him. We haven't talked enough about him, but we can do that at some point. You know what, though? And I, I love how this is like a nice little slide to do this, though. But you're just going to have to come back on then. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I can do that. I can talk. That's not my problem. Exactly. And again, talking music, that's always my thing. Trust me, you can't get me to shut up about that. Absolutely. Because I'm still completely blown away by, um, what's the new one, Soul Invictus? Yes. Like, I... It's so good. Okay. Because I'm always afraid of bands that break up for long periods of time and they come back. Yeah. Because it never seems to be... It never seems to work. Or it does up to a certain point for sheer nostalgia factor. Well, we've had so. How many times have we had the Rolling Stones keep coming back? Oh, they're and they're gonna keep coming back. Zombie Rolling Stones. Oh yeah, and they're gonna sell out every stadium. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, no. It's, yeah, it, it gets ridiculous. Except for the difference here being, it's not just him. All the musicians involved in these projects are continuously pushing themselves to do new things. They're not rusty. Not in the least. They, ne- bit. they have not rested. They have not lost their edge. If anything, they just know themselves. They know themselves as instruments way better than they ever did. So they're just making better music. But they sound completely like retro. Like, you know, this sounds like classic Faith and More, but it sounds new, yeah. but it sounds current at the exact same time. It's strange. Like, I don't, you don't get that too many times. You have to realize, like, when we're creating something, we're influenced by our past and our times and our particular own interests, but we're also innovating at the same time. And so we're creating a sound. So when we're doing that, that sound can, or that piece of art, in my case, like that visual look, can become associated with you. But if you're continuing that process for 30 years and you come back together, you're going to sound like you did before, but you're also going to sound completely new. So the nostalgia is there, but, but it's not all that's there. Yeah, like it just sounds, there's, there's moments in that album that just very ahead of its time and... It's not a competition, but by the same token, it almost makes other bands almost it sound a little embarrassing because it's like, man, there's bands who were like breaking their necks to try to get something that sounds like this. And yet they yeah. show up and did it so effortlessly. And I didn't realize I was missing this until it showed up. Right. Right. That's the thing. You're, you're, you're like, you know, they can add something, but you're like, what what is it going to be? And then you're like, well, that's, I had no clue. That's what it was going to be. That's amazing. The story behind that album that I read was that Mike wasn't sure, but they were hearing these dem like they had the demo tapes. And I think Bill was it Billy that was putting it mostly together. I think he was the one who initiated it, writing these tracks. And then he went outside Mike Patton. No, he was locked out. That's right. So they were they were like jamming together. He was late or something. And he's locked out of the studios outside in the street in San Francisco. And he's sitting outside and he's like texting them or calling them, you know, and they're not listening, picking up because they're playing. 
and he's hearing the songs outside and he's taken back to the moment when he was a kid and he was just a Faith No More fan. <laughs> and he's like locked out and he's like, he's listening to them play and he's listening to them play the new stuff and he's like, man, that's some amazing stuff. And finally they let him in and that's when he was like, this is totally going to work because yes, we had been playing together again because we had been on the second coming tour, but making new music that's different yeah but he realized once he was out there and he was immediately transported back to his old self being just a fan of the band before he was a member he was like oh this is gonna totally work and it did oh man this has been so much fun ben thank you so much for coming on i've had an absolute blast me too man thanks andrew anytime well check us out again because well you'll be back we'll be talking more faith no more so always feel over hit us up because what was your twitter handle again uh, it's Ben Comics. All right, and mine is not not with the next, the traditional way. <laughs> and mine is at Adrian has issues, so we'll probably be spamming your timelines with music discussions. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, that'll do it for Adrian has issues, and we will see you next issue. Let's get this party started up in here. Whoop, whoop. Hey, this is Mark. You're listening to this show probably on your mobile device, whether it's iOS or Android or even Windows Mobile. <laughs> Who has one of those? Uh, but anyway, you're probably listening, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or some other wonderful mobile app that brings this amazingly awesome show to your ear holes. Yeah. But did you also know that you can find this show, among several others in this category, at the Tangent Bound Network? That's right. Go visit TangentBoundNetwork.com. Check it out where you can always get the latest episode of this and other shows quite like it. Although, admittedly, there is no show quite like this one. 